So uh, today I want to talk about, I'm going to continue talking about um, Jesus Amen. and his heart. Yeah. Uh, last week I was sharing, uh, took us to Matthew 11, 28 and 29, and uh, we got to see uh, Jesus explain something. We got to see that when Jesus gets to define his own heart, right? I mean, we've all got people in our life that they, we, they think they know us. Some do, some don't, but no one knows me like I know me, right? It's the same for everybody. So with Jesus, you know, he's even asked his disciples at one point, well, who do people say I am? You know, what do they think I am? Well, when Jesus gets to define himself, he's, he gets to use his own words. When he uh, chooses what words to describe his own heart, he chose the words gentle and lowly of heart. And that is an amazing revelation about the very deepest part, the very core of who our Savior is. He is gentle and lowly. And it is not just, when he says I'm gentle and lowly, it's not like, well, that's what I do on Mondays. Or when I'm having a good day. Or I am, uh, you know, feeling it, right? Feeling God and I've been with the Father for... You know, we prayed for five minutes this week. It's, it's not a quality that he puts on from time to time for special people, right? Well, he's gentle and lowly to you. But he's mean to me. No, that's not it. That is not true. He is, this is not something that he turns on and turns off. It is his core. It is the very core, the central place of his ever being. And so last week, you know, I shared that gentle, the word gentle means that Jesus is meek, he's humble, he's gentle. He's not, in other words, he's not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily irritated. Because he would be done with me, right? I mean, because... I'm irritating, and wow, are you guys irritating? It's like, thank God that Jesus is still not easily irritated. In fact, he's the most understanding person in the universe, right? He's the, the, the most natural position for him is to have his arms open, outstretched towards us. That is who he is. And so I shared that. I shared that lowly, what the word lowly means is, is humble, but not like in the virtue, like it's good to be humble. It's actually the word humble meaning like a sense of hardship or, or being pushed down by life's circumstances. And, and, you know, and so he's identifying with us because he ultimately wants us to know that he is completely approachable. He's like, I'm not high and mighty, even though I am high and mighty. I don't live that way with you. I don't relate to you that way. Even though Jesus is the most magnificent, most glorious person ever to live, he finds in complete enjoyment just being with us. He loves the unlikable. He loves the hard to love. He is fascinated with the rejects of society. And so I also shared last week that gentle and lowly doesn't mean that he is mushy and weak. Gentle and lowly is how he is to those who come to him. But to the unrepentant, we read that his righteous judgment has to come forth. I also talked last week about how the word easy in that statement that when Jesus says, my yoke is easy, easy also means kind. It's a kind yoke that he, he offers us. And in other words, Jesus' yoke is kind, which means it's basically a non-yoke, right? And the yoke, it's this big wood thing that the ox put on and usually two of them are in it together and it's usually it's hard and heavy but Jesus says no get in the yoke with me and it's easy it's a very kind place to be with me and he said his burden was light which means it's really a non-burden it 
practically isn't a burden at all. And so when we are in the yoke with Jesus, we, we get actually carried along with him like helium does for a balloon. And so gentle and lowly, this is who Jesus is in the very depths of all that he is. Amen? All right, so today, so I want to share, I'm going to continue to share about this, and I, I want to share that what, what we see Jesus say and declare with his words in Matthew eleven twenty nine, we actually see him demonstrate in his actions over and over again and again in the four Gospels. What he is, he does. Everyone say that. Say, what he is, he does. What Jesus is, he does. He could not do otherwise. His entire life that we can read about and see in Scripture testifies to the reality when he said, I'm gentle and lowly, I mean it. It's real. So I want to just right off the bat, I want to just look at some real powerful examples of Jesus' heart in action. And I want you to put yourself in each one of these stories. Okay, Matthew 8, starting in verse 2, he says, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. When the leper said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean, Jesus, he didn't hesitate. He immediately reached out his hand. He immediately touched him and he said, I will, I will be clean. Now, that word will in the leper's request and when Jesus said, I will, in his answer, that is a Greek word that means wish or desire. In other words, the leper said, if you desire Jesus, you can make me clean. And Jesus replied back the same way, I do desire. I want this for you more than you even want it for yourself. The leper was asking Jesus, what's in your heart? What's your deepest de desire? What's in there? Because I know if it's in there, it'll come out to me. And Jesus said, no problem. Here's what's in my heart. I am gentle and lowly, and I am not afraid to touch you. I am not afraid to heal you. It is my deepest desire that you not suffer anymore. And he lived that desire out. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, it says, Behold, some people brought him, to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So this group of people are bringing their paralyzed friend to this guy they've been hearing all about, Jesus. And they bring him in. And Jesus doesn't even wait for them to ask what they wanted. He says, it says that he saw their faith and Jesus spoke to the paralytic and he says, My son, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. Before these people could even open their mouths to cry out for help, Jesus couldn't stop himself. Words of comfort and calm just oozed out of him. This man needed to have his conscience cleaned much more than he needed his legs to work. And Jesus went straight to the greatest need he had. It flowed out of him because he is gentle and he is lowly. Matthew 9, 35, 
It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. Say that with me. Say every disease. Say every uh, disease and every affliction. Every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is on his mission. He's traveling city to city. He's drawing these crowds. And in this specific moment, he saw this crowd. It's like they've been listening to me all day. And they're hungry. I know they are. I'm hungry. Jesus gets hungry. And he sees these crowds. And so he moves out of what? His compassion. Because they were harassed and helpless. He could tell they were a beat down people. And so he taught them. He brought words of life to them. And then he healed them. Jesus just seeing the helplessness of the crowd and it was all it took and his heart exploded. It flared up with love. How's your heart doing when you see the broken? When I see the broken? Is this gentle and lovely and lowly Jesus working his way out of you? Matthew 14, verse 14, it says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. There's that word again, compassion. Just say that together. Say, compassion. This compassion gets repeated in Christ's ministry one more time. This compassion caused Jesus to reach out and heal the sick. Matthew 15, verse 32, it says, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have what? Compassion on this crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Out of Christ's heart of compassion, he's meeting physical needs. I don't want you even hungry. I don't even want you leaving here hungry. We got Mark 6, verse 34, where it says that that he went ashore and and he saw a great crowd and he had what? Compassion. He had compassion. What? Oh, sorry. I must have skipped something. Yeah. All right, let's do this. The backwards is not working. There we go. Where are we at? Is that the one we want? Yeah, that's where you got great. Awesome. Thank you for that. Mark 6.34, it says he went ashore and he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many Thanks. Teaching the crowd, being a shepherd, being a compassionate voice of truth in their life. That's us. This is who we're to be. This is how we to receive him. In Luke 7, 13, we can see that he wipes away tears from those who are grieving. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. This Greek word for compassion, it is the same in all of these texts. And it literally, the word literally refers to a person's guts, like their intestines. And this was an ancient way of referring to the things that arise from the depths of who we are. 
Like this was, he felt it in his gut, this feeling of compassion. It came out of the depths of who he is. This compassion is reflecting the deepest heart of Christ. Twice in the Gospels, we are even told that Jesus broke down and he cried. Luke 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and he saw the city of Jerusalem... He wept over it. John 11.34 says, And and he said, Where have you laid him? Jesus went to go see his dead friend Lazarus. Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, See how he loved him. Neither case of grief that we see was for himself. It wasn't for his own pain. In both cases, it was someone else's sorrow. In the first verse, it's Jerusalem. And the other was his deceased friend Lazarus. What was his deepest anguish? It's the anguish of others. What brought Christ to tears? It was our tears. The tears of the people who were mourning the death of their brother, their friend. Time and time again. It is the morally unclean. It is the socially vilified the unforgiving and the unworthy who receive more than just Christ's mercy. These people are those to whom Christ was most naturally attracted to. I mean, we, we have in Luke 7.34, Jesus is, this is what his enemy said about him. He had, a, he had a real reputation with his enemies. And what did they call him? They said, this dude's a friend of sinners. That's how much he hung out. That's how much he loved them. That's how much he wept with them. Like, this dude's friends are the worst of our society. No way he's a Messiah. When they were watching God himself act. When we examine the Gospels as a whole and we consider kind of the big picture, the general picture of who Jesus is, we have to ask ourselves the question, what stands out most to us? Because we all read the Word with a filter. We all see it based on our own emotional state, our own wounds, our own brokenness, our own will, our own desires, our own aspirations, our own hopes and dreams. We, we read the word and we look at it and we filter it through that. Maybe your, your filter is Matthew 5.17. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. So maybe your filter is, well, he came, he was the Messiah, and he, he came to fulfill the Old Testament hopes and desires. Maybe your filter is Luke 5.8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Maybe you see him as this almost untouchable, holy person, and he is holy. His holiness makes even his friends bow down in fear like it was that overwhelming. Aware of their own sins. Maybe it's Mark 1.22. says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Yeah, Jesus, he's my Jesus. He's all power. He's dunamis. He's electric. It's true. He is. 
And we would say, yes, he was a powerful teacher. He had authority that went way beyond even the religious teachers of his day. And all of this is true. It's all true. And to diminish any of it is to move away from important historical truth and belief about who Jesus is. But I want you to know that the striking note that should be ringing in your ears, and I'm not talking about the tendonitis that I've got. Not that ringing. But the note that should be ringing in our hearts and in our ears after reading the Gospels is that the most vivid and striking element, the most clear portrait of Jesus is the way in which the Most High Son of God draws near, He touches, He heals, He embraces, and He forgives those who deserve it the least but need it the most. And that's who my people are. Richard Sibbs, he said it this way. He says, when Christ saw the people in misery, his bowels yearned within him. Works of grace and mercy in Christ, they came from his bowels, the very depth of who he is first. In other words, all that Christ did, he did out of love, grace, and mercy. But then he goes on and he says a little further, he says, he did it inwardly from his very bowels. And we don't talk like this. I get it. Wow, that came out of your bowels. I I felt the Lord on that. We would be recommending psyllium or some kind of supplement to help those bowels. We We don't talk like that. But do you get the picture? Do you see what we're saying? The Jesus that's given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who, who, does, who, who loves well. He is love. He is love. Merciful affections pour out from His innermost heart like rays of light come down from the sun can't stop it now as I said last week and we touched on this what do we do with this the tougher side of Jesus <clears throat> well before we say that I want to point you another quote by J.I. Packer he once wrote that a half truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. And this is a particularly sensitive point when we speak of the biblical revelation of Christ. Most of what people are out calling heresy and what are heresies that have been in church history or Most of the time, a heresy is not a completely upside-down representation of Jesus. Like, they're out there. Don't get me wrong. I I mean, there are some Christian cults, and there are some beliefs, you know, that are completely upside-down about Jesus. But the stuff that usually evolve into heresy is that we have this half-truth about Christ. Most heresy is simply an unbalanced or a lopsided representation of Jesus. Fortunately, much of the debates about Jesus Christ that happened in the early centuries did a really good job of affirming the basic doctrines of Christianity. I mean, they really worked through a lot of this. But the one that keeps getting affronted and we keep messing up one important one is the true 
humanity of Christ with the true divinity of Christ. That is so hard to figure out. He was a complete and 100% man, and he was complete and 100% God. We don't even... I just, and because of that, we get so lopsided. So when we talk about the gentle and lowly heart of Christ, are we in danger of ignoring his wrath? Are we exploiting one side of Christ at the expense of the other? That's the question. Probably for many of us, the danger is not outright heresy. In fact, we were probably very mainstream in our theology. But for some reason, we, we get drawn toward one side of Jesus more than the other. For instance, some of us may have grown up in, a very, in an environment that was just full of rules. And it suffocated us with with an endless sense of never being enough and perfectionism is the only way to, to be enough and to, to, to finally measure up. And so some of us, we grew up where we never felt like we measured up. Well, in that situation, those people tend to be especially drawn to the mercy and the grace of Christ. Now, some of us, grew up in a completely chaotic free-for-all. So, I mean, you didn't know what was happening. Were we going to eat food today? Or were we going to have breakfast? Or am I, mom going to take me? I, you know, all kinds. It was, I'm raising myself. Nothing, I, there's nothing stable. For those of us who grew up like that, the, the structure and the order of a morally limited life rooted in the commandments of Christ become very attractive, right? We start to think, I finally found some solid ground to walk on. Like this is black and white. I can, fit, I can do this. And we're drawn to that. And some of us, we've been deeply abused by those who should have been protectors in life. And we yearn for justice and retribution from heaven or hell, however I get it, to correct the wrongs. And as we focus on the loving heart of Christ, how do we ensure that we develop a healthy understanding of all of God's counsel and have a complete perspective of who Christ is? Well, I'm going to share just three ideas to kind of help us. First, the wrath of Christ and the mercy of Christ are not at odds with each other. It's not a seesaw. It's not like a seesaw where, where one goes down and the other has to come up. And, and, and for the other one to come up, the other one has to go down. Instead, both increase and they decrease together. The stronger our understanding of Christ's righteous wrath against all evil around us and even the evil that's in us, the more we understand that, the better we feel when the mercies of God touch our life. It's when we don't think our lives stink that we treat mercy sometimes and grace is cheap. Second, when we talk specifically about the heart of Christ and the heart of God in the Old Testament, we are not talking about a spectrum, right? Like between wrath and mercy. We're like, where's Jesus on the spectrum today? <laughs> is, he, is he more angry? Is he happy? No, Jesus doesn't live in on the spectrum his heart is his heart. And when we speak of the heart of Christ, we are not just saying that his heart is just one attribute among a whole bunch. The heart of Christ, it is who he is most deeply. It is what comes out of him most naturally. 
And then number three, we only seek to follow the biblical testimony of Christ's love for sinners and those who suffer. In other words, if if there seems to be a sense of imbalance through our filter of the biblical portrait of Christ, well, then we need to allow, we need to err on the side of allowing Scripture to paint who Jesus is over my own biases. Does that make sense? It's better to be biblical than something made up or or for us to create some kind of artificial balance. So, in other words, the loving heart of Christ, this is my point, cannot be over-celebrated. It can't be overrated. It can't be exaggerated. We can't even fully understand it. But it is easy to overlook and to be forgotten. And I would say that rather frequently we, we neglect the truth and the power of his heart. So again, we are not leaving the tougher side of Jesus behind when we speak about his own heart. Our only goal as followers is to follow the Bible's testimony as we discover who Jesus is in surprising ways. And if Jesus' actions are the most profound revelation and reflection of who He is, we cannot avoid concluding that it was the fall of man into sin that Jesus came to undo. It was that thing that drew Him irresistibly to us. And so this, 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 what we're talking about, it goes way deeper than just saying Jesus is loving. He is kind or he's benevolent. The evidence of the four gospels is that when Jesus Christ saw the fallenness of the world around him, his deepest motivation, his most natural instinct was to move towards sin, not avoid it. Now, to help us understand this is in the context of the Old Testament. And in the, in the Old Testament, there were these two categories. One was clean and the other was unclean. So in biblical terms, these categories usually refer not to personal hygiene, but to moral purity. Moral or ethical purity is the primary meaning when we read about the clean and the unclean. And we know this is true because the solution to uncleanliness or uncleanness, when we read the Bible, it's not a bath. It was offering a sacrifice. Right? The problem is not dirt, it's sin. And we can read that in Leviticus 5, verse 5. It says, when... When he, realize, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for a sin. Now again, let's understand in the Old Testament in the Old Testament, Jews lived according to a very complex system of degrees of uncleanness. And so depending on how unclean you were, it determined what kind of offering or ritual that you had to perform to become morally clean again. Now, an alarming part of this system that seemed really unfair is that when an unclean person comes into contact with a clean person, the clean person becomes unclean. And I didn't do nothing. <laughs> you just came up and gave me a stupid hug. <laughs> now you know how I feel. 
the unwashed masses. I'm joking. When the unclean, the morally unclean person touched a clean person, a morally, and they're standing in that day, they become unclean. Moral uncleanness in the Old Testament was contagious. Now, let's think about Jesus. Based on Levite laws, based on how he lived, Jesus was the cleanest man to ever walk on the face of the earth. He was completely, he, he perfected all of the stuff. He was the most pure man ever to exist. Amen. Now, think about the horrors of the world. Think about how you feel when you read about or you see some of the worst horrors of sin that happen in the earth. Just think about how that makes you feel. Sex trafficking. Parents who abuse their own children. Child molestation. Think how that makes you feel. And we, we're unclean. We're fallen. Like we're, we're saved, but we're not perfected. Now just think about that for a moment. Those same horrors. Imagine Jesus now looking and seeing. Those same horrors. Imagine the cringe in him. When he sees what we do to each other around here. I cannot imagine the absolute purity and holiness and cleanness of Christ's mind and heart. So when Jesus was on the earth, he saw the worst of the worst of what humanity does to itself. And what did he do when he saw the unclean? What was his first impulse when he met prostitutes and lepers? He walked right towards them. He walked towards them. Sympathy filled his heart. He felt true compassion. He didn't just go walk over to him and give him a, a side hug and then run off because, ugh. no, he spent time with them. He hung out with them. He touched them. He embraced them. And we can all affirm the value of touch, even me. A warm hug from the right person. I'm sorry. A warm hug does what warm words cannot do alone. And even I have people that I want a warm hug from. Because we're all human. But there is something deeper in the touch of Christ's compassion. He was, he was in the Jewish system, but he was overthrowing it at the same time. See... When Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner becomes clean. You see, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, He was, was restoring unworthy sinners back to their humanity. Right? We tend to see like these miracles of the gospel as disruptions in the natural order. 
But shouldn't we be thinking of that, that miracles are not the disruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order? We are so accustomed to a fallen world that sickness, disease, and death all seem natural. The truth is, they are the interruptions. When Jesus cast out demons and he healed the sick, he was removing the destructive forces that work against all of creation. Jesus healed and restored those who were wounded and sick. God's power and sovereignty was demonstrated through healing His creation. Jesus' healing was not a supernatural miracle in a natural world. The healing and miracles of Jesus are the only true natural thing in a world that is unnatural demonized and traumatized. Jesus walked the earth and he was restoring humanity from being dehumanized. He went about cleansing the unclean. And for what? Because it was his heart. His heart would not let him sleep in. Everywhere Jesus went, he was confronted with sadness and brokenness every town. So wherever he went, wherever and whenever he faced things with pain and desperation, what did he do? He infected them. He infected those people with healing power and cleansing mercy. Thomas Goodwin says, Christ is love covered in flesh. In other words, if you were to pull back Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator skin, it's a robot. Pull back the flesh of Christ, and you will find love. If compassion took on a human body and he walked this earth, what would it look like? We all know the answer. We don't have to wonder. It is Jesus. But this is what Jesus did when he was on the earth. What about now? Let's remember what the New Testament says. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The same Christ who wept at the tomb of Lazarus also weeps with us in the midst of our despairing and our loneliness and our pain. The same Jesus who touched lepers is wrapping his arm around us. He's wrapping his arm around us when we feel misunderstood. When we feel abandoned. Jesus who reached out and cleansed sinners. He's reaching out to our souls. He And He's so good, He responds to our half-hearted cries for mercy. He responds to that with power, supreme cleansing. You're not dirty anymore. He can't do otherwise. In other words, the heart of Christ, it's not far away. Even though now we know He's seated at the right hand of God in heaven. He does these same things now through His Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, Christ Himself not only touches us, but now He lives within us. And the New Testament teaches that we are united with Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Today, Jesus is closer to you, to I, the sinners and sufferers with whom he spoke and interacted during his earthly ministry. Through the Spirit of God, his heart, the heart of Christ, it envelops us. And envelops us, his people, in an embrace that is closer and tighter than any physical embrace could ever give you. His actions on earth in his body reflected his heart. And that same heart now acts the same way towards you. And it's acting the same way to me. Because we're his body. We're the body of Christ. Anyone else want to say amen? Amen. All right, before I do my next thing, I'm going to share the action plan. So take your phone out, take a camera picture of this if you would like. Got some more study questions up there. Help you take this and go deeper. I know they're small. Try to get it all on one slide. You can blow it up in your phone. So I'm going to ask this again today. I'm going to ask everyone to close your eyes. Because Jesus is here. And whether you know it or not, you've been drinking of his spirit and drinking of the true heart of God. And there are some here today I know that don't know Jesus like this. You don't know him as Savior yet, you haven't experienced him as gentle and lowly. You are wishing that you could experience this kind of love and compassion. And I want you to know it's here today for you. So if you're in this place with everyone's eyes closed, I'm going to ask you the most important question of your life. Do you want Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Do you want him To make you clean. He sees your needs. He knows what you need right now. And he is ready and willing to give you this gift. But a gift is no good unless you receive it. And so I'm going to ask if you're in this place today and you've never received Christ. You've never asked Him into your heart. You have never said, I want the salvation that this pure and holy man has that He wants to give to me and make me pure and holy. If you're in this place today and you want to make that commitment, I just need you to raise your hand so I can see it. Because this is the moment. Thank you, Lord. Maybe you're here. And you're like, well, I did that 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 20 years ago. I did that. But maybe, maybe you're not walking with him now. 
Maybe he's not been Lord of your life. Maybe you haven't been experiencing this Jesus that we've been talking about. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I need to rededicate my life. I need to one more time say, you're, I'm all in. I am yours, you are mine, I'm all in. Forgive me for not being all in, God. Forgive me for compromise. If you're here today and you want to rededicate your life, you want to again say, you are the center of my life, raise your hand. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. You're ready to come back home. You're ready to say yes. You are ready for the cleansing and the healing that you've been longing for. That's you. Raise your hand. Amen. I'm going to lead us in a a prayer. And I want everybody to pray this prayer with me. If If you want to get saved and this is the first time and you forgot to raise your hand or you're too scared but you're going to pray then pray if you're rededicating your life pray this Jesus is here so just repeat after me say Father God I accept your sacrifice of Jesus he is your son he is pure he is holy and he's coming to me so I open my heart today I receive Jesus in. I ask him to have complete ownership of my body, of my mind, my emotions, my heart. Make my spirit alive. Holy Spirit, I invite you in. Come and consume me. I give you my life. I turn from my sin. And I give you my all. In Jesus' name, amen.